Hey gang, it's Josh here. We're about to move on to some major new material here on Book, but before we do that, I thought it might be fun to take a quick look at a few strange little bits and pieces from Genesis and Exodus that we omitted for time on our first pass through. Consider these our deleted scenes. Remember, we read the Torah as a single, continuous, and coherent work of literature, not a grab bag of morality lessons or religious claims. These passages, while some of them are very problematic, all contribute to the story, themes, and argumentation of the Torah, albeit in some strange ways, from our point of view. Here they are for your consideration. First up, there's the story in Genesis 11 known as the Tower of Babel. It is the last of the primeval narratives in the beginning of the Torah, and it bridges the gap between Noah's genealogy and Abraham's. It's a short little blurb, so let's just read it. Everyone on earth had the same language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them hard. Brick served them as stone, and bitumen served them as mortar. And they said, Come, let us build us a city and a tower with its top in the sky, to make a name for ourselves, else we shall be scattered all over the world. The Lord came down to look at the city and tower that man had built, and the Lord said, If, as one people with one language for all, this is how they've begun to act, then nothing that they may propose to do will be out of their reach. Let us then go down and confound their speech there, so that they shall not understand one another's speech." Thus the Lord scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confounded the speech of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So the invention of bricks leads mankind to build a city and a tower as high as the sky to make a name for themselves. God seems threatened by their efforts, so he confuses man's languages and then disperses them around the world. On one level, it looks like a straightforward etiological myth. Etiology is a fancy word for stories that explain how something got to be the way it is. In this case, it explains why the cultures of the world are different and why language is a barrier. But there are several other things going on here relating both to history and literature. Now let's start with the literary aspect, and for this I turn to uh, an observation from one of my seminary professors, Dr. R. Brian Widbin. Widbin notes that this story comes right after the story of Noah and his sons, and puts a nice cap on a double cycle that's been running since Genesis chapter 1. Now the first cycle runs like this. Number one, disorder, the pre-creation chaos. Number two, God orders, creation. Number three, man disorders, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel in the garden with their sin. Number four, man reorders, the descendants of Cain build cities and cultures. Number five, God disorders, he sends the flood. So then the second cycle starts and follows the same progression. Disorder, the uncreation of the flood destruction. And number two, God orders, recreation as the flood recedes. Then man disorders Noah and his sons and their sin in the vineyard. And then man orders, number four, Ham and his descendants build nations. And then finally, God disorders man's counterfeit order with the dispersal at Babel, which is serving the same function in the literary flow as the flood did. This suggested literary structure is compelling for the way it gives unity to the seeming hodgepodge of material of Genesis 1 through 11. 
It also sets up the sorry state of the world out of which God will call Abram to be a great nation and a blessing to all other nations. This is a world that needs a blessing, according to the literature. Historically, or rather anthropologically, this is a story about humans and technology. Man develops an amazing new tool, the brick. He can build walls faster and higher, and his ambition can reach further and further. This is the stuff of heroes in uh, a work like Mesopotamia's Gilgamesh or the Babylonian Enuma Elish. In fact, Babel here is most likely an ancient reference to Babylon. Here in the Hebrew scriptures, however, this kind of overreach is viewed as man's folly, attempting to counterfeit God's accomplishments in creation. This is another critique of the pagan worldview. And by the way, the bit about the invention of bricks is a nice inclusio for the beginning of the Exodus story when uh, the Hebrews have to uh, make bricks without straw in uh, Egypt. And that is the Tower of Babel. Next up is a subplot from Genesis involving Abram's loser nephew, Lot. From a literary perspective, if Abram represents a faithful, if flawed, man after God's own heart, then Lot represents a dumb guy. When God calls Abram to settle his family in Canaan, Lot decides he'd rather hang his hat in the southern Jordan Valley in and around the charming hamlets of Sodom and Gomorrah. On more than one occasion, Abram must save Lot's Saritukas from imminent danger, risking his own reputation and the future of the covenant in the process. The first of these incidents involves a small war in Genesis chapter 14, in which Lot becomes a prisoner. Some local chieftains go to battle, including the mayor of Sodom. His army is defeated and the people of Sodom are pillaged and carried away, including Lot and his family. Abram, who has tried his best to live peacefully among the locals, gathers an army of his own men, an indication of just how wealthy he was, and rescues them, not just Lot and family, but everyone. In the aftermath of the battle, there's a very strange little incident, starting in verse 17 of Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat of Kederleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is also a priest of God Most High, El Elyon in Hebrew. He blesses Abram, and Abram tithes 10% of the spoils from his victory in the battle. Who is this king-slash-priest? How does Abram recognize him as a priest of El Elyon? And why is he giving him a tithe? Where did he learn to tithe, for that matter? Remember, this is all long before the law, and even before Israel. Once again, a pre-Israelite Hebrew in Genesis is acting very much like a future citizen of the nation of Israel. And the key to this might just be Melchizedek's home city of Salem, which many historians believe is the city that will later be called Jerusalem, which will, of course, become the political and religious center of life in Israel. This is the only appearance of Melchizedek in a narrative text, but he will be invoked later in one of King David's worship songs called Psalms, and then again in the New Testament book called Hebrews. According to Israel's law, a king may not perform the job of a priest and vice versa, but the odd precedent of Melchizedek will not be forgotten. File him away in the back of your minds and we'll come back to him later. 
Now we come to the delightful tale of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. This is a notoriously difficult passage for modern Western readers. But once again, we must carefully investigate the literary presentation to be sure that we understand what's really going on. In Genesis 18, word comes to Abram through two visitors that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah where his nephew Lot lives. Abram intercedes, begging God to have mercy and spare the cities if he can find ten righteous men living there. God agrees, and then in chapter 19, the two visitors head off to Sodom, where Lot welcomes them into his home. That night, every person of every age in Sodom surrounds Lot's house, and the mob demands that he hand over the visitors so that they may know them sexually. Lot, bright as ever, offers his own daughters instead, but the crowd insists. By morning, the visitors, revealed to be angels, instruct Lot to escape with his family. He does, but his wife has some doubts, and she looks back and is turned into a pillar of salt. Pillars of salt, it turns out, are a real geological feature of the southern Jordan Valley to this day. Then God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with tar and fire from the sky, as he promised he would if no righteous men could be found within them. What's going on with this story? Well, let's talk a little bit about what is not going on with this story. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah are not destroyed because they are homosexual or because they are simply breaking God's commandments. The people of Sodom are completely given over to violence and destruction and are even raising their children to behave this way. The text goes out of its way to set this up in terms of oppression and injustice, not just God randomly zapping some sinners. Here's chapter 18 verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that's come to me, and if not, I will know. There's that word outcry again. As when Abel's blood cried out from the ground in Genesis 4, or when the cry of the oppressed Hebrew slaves rose up to God's ears in Exodus. According to the text, God doesn't randomly choose Sodom and Gomorrah for destruction because they violated his rule book or they're particularly annoying to him. The offense of their behavior is so rank and the cry of their terrified neighbors so loud that God has no choice but to step in and administer justice. And note that despite the literal fire and brimstone imagery here, we're still not talking about a heaven-hell situation. God doesn't damn Sodom and Gomorrah to eternal suffering. He puts an end to their reign of terror and gives relief to their victims. Now for the moment, put aside what you believe or disbelieve or approve or disapprove of regarding the Bible. We're just trying to get a glimpse of the internal logic of the literature. Sodom and Gomorrah is about justice and judgment, and in the Bible... Judgment is just as much wonderful news for the oppressed as it is bad news for the oppressor. In the charming epilogue to this story, Lot and his newly widowed daughters flee to a nearby cave where his daughters get Lot drunk and have sex with him so the family line can continue. And, surprise, surprise, the children born of this backwoods union will be the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites, two more of Israel's future enemies. All right, one more deleted tidbit today, and this one's from Exodus. There's a very strange little paragraph early in the scroll about Moses and his wife Zipporah that has baffled modern interpreters. It's found in chapter 4, right after God gives Moses the three magic tricks at the burning bush, and right before he goes back to Egypt. It goes like this, starting in verse 24. At an encampment along the way, 
the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to kill him. So Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it, saying, You are truly a bridegroom of blood to me. And when he let him alone, she added, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Some aspects of these three verses are very elusive. The meaning of the phrase bridegroom of blood is not well attested. Uh, and the pronouns of the text are quite vague. It's actually not completely clear who is being circumcised here in the Hebrew text, Moses or his son. Then there's the question of why God suddenly wants to kill Moses, whom he just recruited to be his prophet in the previous section. However, with careful attention to some literary cues and the context, we can at least begin to understand the point of this little interlude. It's reasonably clear that the episode centers around circumcision, and that helps to explain a great number of things. Back in Genesis, when God prescribed circumcision as a visible sign of the Hebrews' covenant, it was made clear that any son of a Hebrew who was not circumcised would be cut off from the covenant, pun perhaps intended. This is found in Genesis 15. If Moses had failed to comply with this covenant requirement and left his son uncircumcised, he would have to straighten that out before he headed off to Egypt as the people's representative. He would not be a true Israelite. As for God wanting to kill Moses, it sounds a bit drastic, but I think it makes literary sense as a foreshadow of the 10th plague, wherein God will kill the firstborn son of every Egyptian household unless there is lamb's blood on the doorpost. In both cases, a deadly threat looms and blood functions as a deflection of the wrath. Before Moses can leave Midian for Egypt, he must comply with God's demand. In the same way, later on, Israel must comply before they can leave Egypt for Canaan. Now that's just a suggestion of what's going on here. Your mileage may vary. Consult your physician. And those are going to be our Torah deleted scenes for today. And now you know why I left them out. This has been a supplement of book a Bible podcast for everybody. I have been Josh Way. Find much more content at book.joshway.com and I will see you next time. Take care. Music.